before we get this episode started, we need to thank our wonderful sponsors. That are sponsors, especially our three annual sponsors, David Carell of Universal Creative Concepts, Gardner-Webb University School of Divinity, and Campbell University Divinity School. This podcast wouldn't happen. So here's where you come in. Take a few minutes to go to each of their websites and check what they have to offer. Or if you really want to take it to the next level, be sure to tweet about this episode and thank our sponsors. This podcast is brought to you by David Carell of Universal Creative Concepts. At UCC, they specialize in partnering with churches and ministries like yours to provide quality products for your logo and branding. David likes to find the right products that represent and fit your desired need and budget. UCC can logo virtually any product that you might be looking for. Need apparel like t-shirts, jackets, polos, socks for staff, youth groups, conferences, or for many other branding needs? UCC is your one-stop shop. UCC can provide all logoed items that you use for visitors, from pins to drinkware, or tees for VBS. David desires to be your go-to guy for all items logoed. On a personal note, I've been using David at Universal Creative Concepts since 2009, and I hope you will give him the opportunity to serve your promo needs. Whatever you want logoed, David does it. Contact him today at 1-888-GO-TO-GUY or 888-GO-TO-GUY.NET. That's 1-888-GO-TO-GUY or 888-GO-TO-GUY.NET. Hey, you won't be disappointed. This is the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship's Conversations. We are bringing you stories from across the fellowship through interviews with people doing groundbreaking work and renewing God's world. Ideas, stories, and innovation from ministers, authors, and practitioners from across the fellowship and beyond. This is Andy Hale. Before we get to our conversation, we want to make you aware of the next month's worth of episodes and a couple of podcast updates. The next few episodes, you will hear interviews with pastor and author Robin Meyer, author of Demanding Liberty, Brandon J. O'Brien, a conversation with Jesuit priest, Father James Martin. Things will sound a little different in the next few weeks as we enter into CBS Journal Assembly. Instead of a podcast episode dropping on June the 11th and the 18th, you'll be able to access live interviews from Journal Assembly on CBS social media platforms. These interviews, including a conversation with former White House faith advisor, Michael Ware, will be released later this year on podcast episodes. Our guest for this week's podcast is Daniel Jose Camacho. He is the writer for The Guardian, with his work appearing in The Christian Century, Religion Dispatch, Sojourner, Duke Magazine, ABC Religion and Ethics, Time, Washington Post, and The New York Times. Daniel, thank you for joining the conversation. Thanks for having me, Andy. So I guess my initial uh, question is, good God, how do you keep up with the, the plethora of platforms you write for? Um, that's a good question. I don't know. <laughs> I think I basically, um, I don't, so one of the questions I often get is if I have like a regular write-in schedule and I'm always embarrassed when I get that question because I, I really don't, <laughs> I squeeze in my write-in whenever I can. Um, so I, I work a full-time job. I work in student affairs and I try to do my write-in kind of on the side and so, so I, I really have to squeeze it in whenever I can. It mostly ends up being evenings, weekends, and even sometimes when I'm on, assign, on a, an assignment and I have a deadline to meet, um, I've, I've had to pull a couple of all-nighters. Um, and this is even after I've left school. So I thought once I, once I graduated you know, from college and from seminary, I was like, there's no way I'm going like, to pull an all-nighter again. But sometimes I've actually had to finish certain pieces and drafts. So um, yeah, I, I just do it because I think... I have these things that have to get out of me 
Um, sometimes it's because I really want to write something. Other times it's because I've been given, you know, a deadline to complete a piece. And um, I want that paycheck. <laughs> I want to be able to publish that piece in time because it's following the new cycle. And so, yeah, I just, um, I try to, to manage the best I can, but I don't really have any coherent schedule. Maybe during the summer when I have lighter hours, I, I will have like a more regimented schedule, but right now I don't have one. So you're kind of like the reverse Clark Kent. Uh, you know, you have this other <laughs> job, but you do writing as your superhero work. It's, uh, yeah, that, that'll be your new tagline, the reverse Clark Kent. So, all right, so you were uh, born to uh, uh, Colombian immigrants and raised in Uniondale, New York. So how does a kid from Uniondale end up in Grand Rapids, Michigan for college? Yeah, that's, that's another great question that I, I got a lot when I ended up in Michigan. So, yeah, I'll just tell you a little bit more about where I'm from. So, yeah, I was raised on Long Island, New York. My parents are from uh, this Caribbean city of, of Barranquilla in Colombia. And um, I was raised in a community that um, was heavily a uh, representation of, of immigrants from Central America and the Caribbean and South America. And, um, and yeah, I, I came from a community where I, I went to public schools my whole life. Um, and for whatever reason, like, I, I wanted to experience something uh, slightly different. Now, I think what next, what sort of brought me to look for like a Christian school like Calvin is that faith has always been an important part of my life. Um, so I was raised in the church. I mean, my parents, even though they were not like ordained clergy, uh, my mom was a lay preacher and my dad, and I was raised in a Methodist, United Methodist um, congregation, but it was like a Spanish speaking um, immigrant congregation. So it was like, you know, John, John Wesley, but with a lot more like movement <laughs> and, you know, it was a little bit, a little bit of a mix of, uh, you know, when I got to meet other Methodist churches, I was like, you know, it, it was a unique tradition, you know, it's, it's um, for some people would call it uh, Latino Evangelicos or the Latino Protestant tradition, which is sort of its own, has its own genealogy. But, but anyways, um, I, I was raised already with my faith being very important to me. But it was really during my, my teenage years where I had to wrestle with it and kind of take ownership of, over it. And that's when I started to ask a lot more critical questions. And I started to, I, I basically got an online degree in theology by reading blogs and listening to sermons and podcasts. And at that point, I convinced myself, I was like, I want to go to a Christian school because I had been to public school my whole life. And I want to go to a place where I can take more classes in like theology and philosophy. Um, and so I started to look for schools, and I, I did a summer program at, at Calvin. Um, and they also had a really great, um, and they still have, I think, a pretty good uh, philosophy department, um, which is something I was interested in. And so I made the journey, and I had no idea what I was getting myself into. Well, believe it or not, you are actually the second guest we've had on this podcast that went to Calvin and is very familiar with Joust the Knight, the historic mascot of Calvin College. <laughs> oh, wow. Who's the other Calvin alum? Uh, yeah, Caitlin Beatty of Christianity Today joined us. And, oh, okay. uh, yeah. yeah. I actually informed her that was the name of the mascot. She had no idea. She's like, no, sports was the, you know, uh, least <laughs> bit of interest when I was on campus there. So you went from uh, Calvin <laughs> and then you ended up in, uh, in Durham for uh, Duke Divinity School. Tell us about your experience there. <laughs> Yeah, so I went straight from Calvin to, to Duke, uh, and 
I really, at that point, I think I was starting to make a lot of transitions and starting to ask more critical questions of my faith. I think one of the things that I was wrestling with coming out of Calvin is really had to do with the questions of, of race and identity and diversity and the church and, and Christianity. Um, one of the shocking experiences that I first had at Calvin and kind of precipitated some of the questions that I brought to Duke is, um, so I, when I went to public schools in New York, um, my school district was about 97 or 98% students of color. Um, my neighborhood basically went through a dramatic change. My parents were uh, one of the first uh, Latino families to move into Uniondale, um, which is uh, historically was a small town that was for veterans, for World War II veterans. Um, but like many communities um, in the United States, over time there's like, you know, a lot of uh, changes that take place. So my parents were one of the first immigrant Latino families to move in, and I have older siblings. Um, and when they went to school, they had they had white friends. Uh, they had white friends that they played with at school. By the time that I got to my high school, there were no white students left. Uh, they were they just weren't around. So it wasn't that I was like trying to be isolated, but I, I really didn't grow up with an experience of being around white people in general or, or white Christians that much. The, the, the experiences were kind of few and far in between. So when I was at Calvin. This was my first time really being immersed in a place where the majority was white, and I felt out of place. I felt like there, I had some some personal experiences that really, I don't know, were were harmful. That made me feel like, you know, here I am trying to, um, you know, I think that we we both claim the same faith. We claim we we claim to be baptized, um, you know, into the same faith and to follow Jesus, and yet for some reason I felt that. Um, my community and who I was was not like being fully affirmed. Um, so, so I had some of those, you know, kind of rough experiences and it wasn't all bad, you know, at Calvin, I also had, you know, some great teachers. And I think one of the reasons why I love to write is because, and I, I've gotten better in my writing. I, I don't consider myself a good writer. I'm always in progress and trying to improve. But one of the reasons why I've been able to write is because I had some really good teachers and I'm stretching back to high school, but including Calvin. Uh, teachers who took time uh, to work with me. And so I had some some really great things that happened to me there um, that I, w I would never trade away. I also had some experiences that really challenged me. So I went when I went to Duke, um, that's when I um, really wanted to dig deeper and really address like, what is the history of Christianity and its relationship to, to slavery, to immigration, to race? Um, and so, yeah, so that I, I, went, I went to Duke um, and I, I started, I did my master's of divinity there. Um, and I, you know, I, I was kind of unsure what I was going to do at that point, if I was going to be a pastor or if I was going to be a scholar. Um, but one thing that was kind of constant is that I, I enjoyed writing and I would write for class and I would write on the side. And that, that's what I continued to do. Well, you, you certainly didn't shy away from difficult things. Uh, tell us about your work with race racism. Yeah, so um, it's a nonprofit that I worked for. So actually, like, I, I was at Duke for one semester, and then I, I took a leave. Uh, and it was really um, part of it was I was burnt out. Um, I had gone straight from Calvin to Duke. Um, and um, I had a lot of just personal things that weren't going on. I was roommate off campus I, I didn't get along with. I I really missed a home. I also I was a long distance relationship with my my friend now. She's my my wife. So 
there's a lot of stuff that I was dealing with. And I, I took um, I took a year off and I went back to New York. I'm kind of in the middle of my, my master's program. And um, yeah, I worked for a nonprofit called The Race Racism here on Long Island um, that basically uh, does advocacy work um, around uh, educational disparities on Long Island. So Long Island is one of the most uh, segregated sort of suburban uh regions in the in the country um that plays out in terms of 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 the public kind of public school structures also access to healthcare, and it would even play out in in sort of how uh there were the responses to uh superstorm sandy and how different areas sort of were able to receive aid and how quickly they received aid so i was there and i was an intern and then basically that was there I, I was able to really learn more about um, public policy and talk to sort of leaders, local leaders on Long Island, and le learn about how these things play out on the ground. Well, it certainly, you know, could take effect. I mean, um, in 2016, you went back to Colombia uh, with a, a peace delegation uh, to learn more about armed conflict and ongoing peace process. Um, tell us about um, tell us about the delegation. Tell uh, you know who was with you and 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 what was your hopes and dreams for that time. Yeah, so um, I went to Colombia um, with Witness for Peace, an uh, organization called Witness for Peace, which was was an organization started by uh, radical Catholic nuns. Uh, this was decades ago. They started it uh, actually when they were working in Central America, in El Salvador and Nicaragua. Um, and when uh, Central America was going through sort of its own political upheaval and civil wars in the in the 70s and the 80s. Um, these nuns uh, were, witnessing the, were witnessing the ways in which the United States was complicit in some violence um, and some of the sort of soaking, soaking some of the violence and civil wars that were taking place. And they wanted to uh, basically bring people from the United States and show them what was actually happening on the ground because there's a lot of misinformation about sort of who were the enemies and what was actually happening. And so that organization, that's where it started. And it's continued to exist, and now it does it does sort of delegations to many different countries, including Cuba and Colombia. And I happened to go to the one that was in uh, Colombia, and for me, it was it was probably one of the best um, experiences I've had. It was really meaningful for me because my that's where my heritage goes, my family, my extended family is. Um, that was actually my second time going to Colombia ever. I haven't been to Colombia too many times. Um, the first time that I went. Um, was when I was, um, it was after my first year in college. And I, I met my extended family for the first time. Uh, and that's where I learned a lot about, more about my personal identity, um, about being Afro, Afro-Colombian, Afro-Latino. Um, and so seeing more of sort of where my family's from and the culture and everything. And then this peace delegation, um, that's where I got really to learn more about the political history of my country. Now. As a Colombian American, um, there. How do I describe this? It's basically that I think for a lot of us, there's there's like a shadow kind of looming over us, and that shadow is what has happened in our country. And Colombia, for those who don't know, is a country that's kind of been engulfed in in civil a slow burning civil war for decades. Um, and I, my parents, thankfully, the, the violence, the, some of the political violence there hasn't touched my family personally, but even, even though that's the case, like, it, it's something that it nevertheless still, it, it sort of looms over you, um, because I, I would go, when I went back to visit my family, uh, or when I went to, I, I should say, for the first time to see my family, uh, they were telling me how there were paramilitary troops that were, like, stationed there, just, like, 
a year before I got there that, you know, I would have needed to pay somebody to make it past a certain time. I would have needed to pay certain armed guards. And so it's a legacy that has been ongoing. Um, this peace allegation, um, I basically went with uh, some people that work for the for a witness for peace and then some other activists. Some of them were faith-based and some of them um, were secular or were from other organizations. Uh, I I became really good friends with a lawyer from London who came to basically do human rights work. Um, and yeah, it was, a, it was a really great experience. I got to talk to uh, local activists um, and churches and groups and find out what is the peace process looking, looking like right now. And uh, basically what's been happening there is that um, the, uh, there's a, the largest armed rebel group, um, which is called FARC, has uh, demilitarized, has put their, their arms down. Um, has come into an agreement, a pact with uh, the government, um, and this is—it's—it's it's a big deal. It's—it's it's obviously it's not the end of all conflict. There continues to be a few other armed uh, rebel groups, and and there continues to be violence from perpetrated from all sides. Um, but it's certainly a step in the right direction. So in my trip there, um, I got to learn a lot also about how complicated violence is, because um, often we hear stories about sort of who the terrorists are and and who's who's the bad guy and who's the good guy and when i went there i just learned that this situation is is so much more complicated well you your passion for um justice issues certainly pours over into your writing i mean for our listeners just some of these topics that you've hit on in the last um, six months how the changing church will define the future of u.s politics uh, the days of the right-wing evangelical swing, political, um, you know, favor is, is numbered. Um, my favorite article, Why Black Panther is the Movie Hollywood and America Needs. And then, of course, uh, you wrote an article recently on the fate of Western civilization. Um, as you consider um, your writing, um, you know, what, what, is your, what is your theology for your writing? Huh, my the, the theology for my writing... Um, I think it's emerging. <laughs> I think my theology is in process. Um, I don't think I have a fully figured out like uh, systematic theology and I'm here trying to, you know, just uh, give uh, certain instantiations of it. I think I have certain convictions. I think I have certain motivations. Um, as I continue to write, I have uh, certain things that I'm, I'm more clear on um, but as far as my theology goes, it's something that continues to grow. Um, but one of the things I think that drives um, my writing is really this, this conviction that um, we, need to, um, we need to contest and battle with narratives that, that justify oppression and that, ju that justify the, the dehumanization of groups. Uh, there are some very seductive narratives out there, including uh, Christian ones and theological ones, that would make us, would convince us that there are certain people that are at the bottom in this world and that they deserve to be there, <laughs> or that there's like there's good reasons why they're there, and and so on and so forth. And I think some of those narratives need to be challenged. Um, something else that I also wrestle with in my writing, I think that's um, that's been kind of growing in me, is this conviction that even those of us who consider ourselves more liberal or progressive, and you know, we would never identify with the religious right, uh, we cannot sort of hold to this idea of innocence that somehow we are not implicated 
in a lot of these problems that are taking place. I think sometimes it's very easy, especially today, to in, nowadays to sort of point the finger at the religious right and look at sort of the, hypocr the hypocrisy there and look at what's been happening with, with Trump and, and with a number of things. But it's much harder to sort of look at, well, how, how has the rest of the church and our, or how have we ourselves, how, we have, how have we failed um, to really love our neighbor? Or how have we failed to, to put pressure on our politicians and those in power to do the right thing? Because the way that we got to Trump and the way we got to this political moment, it wasn't you know, overnight. <laughs> Like these are things that have been building for a long time, and there are there are structures. When if you want to talk about ICE or mass incarceration or the war on drugs or uh, minimum wage, like these are things that have been ongoing with multiple that have been carried out under Democrats and under Republicans. And so, in order to be, I think you know, a truly prophetic Christian, um, you have to let go of this notion that you know, that somehow you're innocent if you're not part of the religious right, if you're not sort of explicitly embracing bigotry, that that you're okay and they're they're just wrong. It's like, no, actually I think we're all caught we're all caught up in this. And that's one of the things that I learned when I went to Colombia actually is that um I realized just the impact that the United States has had in terms of kind of uh, stoking some of the flames of violence and a lot of the aid that United States had gave to Colombia in the past decades has been military aid. Um, and yet when I went to talk to people there, a lot of the things that they said were causing were sort of the root sources of the violence was a lack of access to land, uh, so much land that is being uh, privatized, that is being uh, stripped and, and, and by multinational corporations, the lack of access to healthcare, education opportunities. And so when you have basically a flame of violence and you're just pouring a ga more gasoline of, of weapons, that is not going to help. And yet here I was coming, you know, coming from the United States and just seeing how, you know, even my own government was implicated in sort of making things harder uh, for the people down there. So it's, it's a very, yeah, I think it's a very complicated thing, but my theology is very much, you know, emerging. It's something that um, as I continue to write, I, I come to certain convictions. This podcast is presented to you by Campbell University Divinity School. Committed to Christ-centered, Bible-based, and ministry-focused theological education, and committed to helping you answer your call with a variety of master and doctoral level programs, Campbell University Divinity School understands that those who understand the calling to ministry face many challenges. One of those challenges is maintaining a healthy balance in the face of stress, long hours, and high demands. If you're a minister and long for a place of retreat, please consider attending Campbell's third annual Minister's Health Summit on Thursday, June the 7th. The Minister's Health Summit is a one-day retreat that promotes wellness, self-care, and education for ministers, and offers ideas to promote healthy lifestyle habits for people that serve. Registration for the event is $30 and includes a free health screening, breakfast and lunch, one large group keynote session, two breakout sessions, resources for ministers and congregational health, and a t-shirt. The event will begin at 8 a.m. and last until 5.15 p.m. For more information on our keynote speakers, breakout sessions, and schedules, please visit divinity.campbell.edu and click on events under the church relations tab. Yeah, that's... There's a tough history there for the U.S. I mean, if um, history doesn't repeat itself, then maybe Cuba has something to say about that. I mean, the United States was certainly complicit in so much of uh, what led to what we see in Cuba today with, um, you know, 
American business owners uh, taking advantage of the economy there and, and so much. There, there's something you said, though, that I want to go back to. Is there something wrong with the Trump presidency? <laughs> uh, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's always fun. To hey, we, just, we just met each other. Let me, uh, let me toss up that out to see if you know. Uh, you know, uh, there's something that you said that, uh, that really resonates with me. And it's something I think really in the last six months that I've begun to discover my own personal life and with friends that um, really fundamentalism isn't just on the right, it's on the left. And on the left, uh, it's so easy to um, become uh, a bigot when it comes to what you expect other people to believe, what you expect other people to practice, and the demand for people to see uh, your own, you know, just your way. And if it's not your way, it's not right, which is the marks of fundamentalism. Um, so, yeah, I, I, there's something powerful in what you're saying of how do we recenter ourselves um, not on identifying on the right or left or with these silly labels that we give each other and ourselves. Um, but how do we identify with, you know, loving our neighbor um, and trying to um, push for, for social and theological um, and political progress. Um, there's nothing wrong with having a voice and having a different perspective, but it's, it's also how we treat people along the way. Yeah, definitely. I agree. <laughs> so, so for you, how, how's your, How's your faith shaped the way that you approach writing? Well, I think writing is an act of faith. Uh, when you write, um, it's very much an, an act of faith. I think even for the people who don't believe when they write or don't have any faith, there, there's something there. But for me, the way uh, writing itself is an act of faith because um, it's almost, I see it almost like prayer. Um, when you pray, you don't know exactly what's going to happen. It's not the simple formula that, you know, you ask God for something and you automatically get it the next day. Um, and it's the same thing with writing. I might want to write something and say, I'm going to write this and I'm going to change the world or I'm going to write this and I'm going to change somebody's mind. Or even more humbly, I'm going to write this and I'm going to have a good paragraph. And sometimes it just doesn't happen. <laughs> and so uh, writing, I think, itself is, a, is an act of faith because I have to believe that um, in, in trying to do this, that um, something is something will come of it that it's sort of a, a seed for something and I also I think the way my faith animates me when it comes to writing is that I see it as a form of ministry I see it as something as one way that I can hopefully you know reach others um, a lot of it is not I don't, I don't think writing is this sort of this thing that you start and you think that you can actually change the world and change entire things um, it's really it's really small scale I think it starts with you not feeling alone like when i read somebody when i've read other books and i've been you know inspired i've been touched it's this feeling that look oh i'm not the only one and so when i write i i basically i'm in that position where i'm sometimes i'm, I'm writing for myself i'm trying to clarify my own thinking but then i'm also ho hoping in the back of my mind that someone's going to read this and they're going to say you know me too or i understand i know how it feels um or it clarifies something for them and so i think for writing a lot of it the whole process is about faith because you don't know um, you don't know what's going to happen uh, when you start writing unless I, I guess unless you're just a, a, an exceptional genius. But uh, for myself and I think a lot of other writers I know, like writing is, is a, it's a really messy process. It's messy. Um, you also have to have the courage to, to do it because oftentimes you feel like you're failing or nothing's coming about. Um, but you have to believe that God is somehow going to take those, God is going to take those words and it's going to take that process 
and is it is going to use it for healing or is going to use it for good for yourself and for others i mean at least at, at its best i think that's what writing is about it's it's all it's all the faces in the whole process yeah you know we we live in this clickbait you know shares and likes um culture and certainly um writing is uh, subject to that um you know, it's easy to measure success based on the number of um, downloads, the number of likes, the number of shares. Um, so for you, how do you measure success in your writing? Hmm. Yeah, success, I think that, yeah, it's tough. It's very, uh, it's kind of almost intangible. Uh, success when it comes to writing, I think it varies on depends on what I'm writing for so for example like I used to write poetry uh to impress my current wife I don't write her poetry and and it, I think it worked because she's still with me so <laughs> some of the best things that I've written have never been read by more than like two people me and my wife <laughs> yeah but the problem is <laughs> when you uh, when you write poetry for her then you got to keep it up because if not she's gonna be like hey you remember when you used to write poetry for me <laughs> <laughs> that's absolutely true i have to i have to keep it up because i i've started with that standard but um but yeah it depends so i think when it comes to the success um i do i mean to be to completely honest there are pressures when you are when you're at the point where you're starting to publish and i i've gotten to the point where i've been writing for a while i've been blogging since like i was a teenager and i've gotten to the point where i've finally started to appear in certain outlets that get published in places and there are certain pressures that are different for those mediums because for example when I publish for The Guardian um, which I have that kind of a relationship with them now where I, I write for their opinion section um, there is this expectation that people are going to click on it otherwise I'm not gonna they're not gonna want me to write for them if no one's reading my work and that is gonna be relevant to the news um, so I think there are certain pressures that come at the same time, I think there are certain things that I've learned that before I would have probably been really dismissive of. I, I would have said that, you know, all, all of this is very much, you know, I, I could have easily looked at a lot of opinion writing. I would say this is all, you know, clickbait or this is all kind of like very superficial stuff. But once I actually started to do it and I was tasked with doing it, I realized how freaking hard it was <laughs> to, write, to write so fast and to respond to something and to to come up with, you know, a specific angle, an angle that you think you could, you can either clarify or helpfully provoke, you know, a readership around something that just happened like 24 or 48 hours ago. Um, so I actually think that's a gift. It's like, it's a, it's a, it's a skill. It's a, it's a skill that not everybody has, so, or you can, you can develop it, I think. Um, so I, I've become more appreciative of that. But in terms of like overall success, I think for me, First, you have to like it yourself. You have to actually appreciate and, and enjoy your own voice and think you're doing something. Like for me, that I'm probably my harshest critic. Um, I, I can be somewhat of a perfectionist. And so for success for me means that I read it and I think it sounds pretty good, <laughs> and which, is, which is kind of a tough task because there'll be times where I'll, I, I will write something, I'll even publish something, and I'll be afterwards, I'll just be scratching my head. I'll be like, oh my gosh, that could have been so much better. But um, but success, like at the same time, you have to let go of that perfectionism. Perfectionism, otherwise, you're not going to write anything. Um, so yeah, for me, like success is that you, you're you're writing something, you're working on something, and you like it, 
and hopefully you come to some type of breakthrough for yourself. You 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 gain something. You either uh, you know you exercise some type of demon, or you you gain an insight that you otherwise would have never you know gained if you didn't go through that process. And then along the way, there's going to be other people that join you for that journey. And I think that for me is like if you're able to in your writing, whether that's a blog post or that's like even like a Facebook post. Um, a lot of a lot of some of my opinion pieces have started as as Facebook posts, so, you know, basically what used to be the equivalent of what I wrote as a Facebook post. Like, if you're able to work with something and wrestle with it and you gain some some clarity, and then you have some people join you along the way, I think to me that's success, and that that can happen in a number of mediums and ways. So hopefully, when the Guardian is listening to this, they know that hey, it doesn't always. You know, success isn't just about the number of clicks you get. It's about the transformation that happens along the way. And hey, you sponsors, you should also remember that. Um, so your work is spread across a lot of platforms. Sojourner, The Guardian, Time, The Washington Post, New York Times. So how do you decide what to write about and, and which platform that's, that's going to be written for? Okay. Um, so yeah, so for that, Sometimes it's very easy in the sense that there have been times where I'll, I'll come up with a topic that I want to write about. There will be something that happened. For example, like something that I've written about has been Martin Luther King Jr. and his political vision. And I remember that was a piece that I shopped around and um, I got a lot of rejections and a lot of people that never responded to me. <laughs> and so sometimes it's very simple. Like I you know, write something and I just, I think of a number of publications that might be a good fit for, or that would be a good fit. And I send a pitch. And then, you know, whoever answers back, that's where it goes <laughs> in terms of whoever actually wants it. Sometimes it's no one. And it means that, that just means it goes nowhere. I have to keep working on it. Or um, eventually I'll, I'll either post it on my personal blog or um, I, I have, I do some more blogging for the Christian Century. Um, so in terms of the places that certain things go to, it really depends. Um, there'll be times where I, um, someone will commission me for a piece. So like the Black Panther piece, uh, somebody just asked me if I wanted to write about it, uh, an editor there. And, and I was like, yeah, sure. I'm already planning to watch this movie. I'm really excited to watch it. And this will, this will make me watch it twice so I can write something good about it. And I was you know, happy to do that. Um, but yeah, in terms of like finding places, it, it really varies. Sometimes, sometimes it's a matter of like submitting to a number of places and just seeing who responds. Other times, like I have uh, an editor reach out to me. Um, and sometimes I just like kind of do something on my own and I just either post it on you know, my blog or something. Well, we did some Google analytics on the Black Panther article, and it looks like uh, Wakanda is actually downloading that article uh, quite a few times. <laughs> oh, Wakanda. <laughs> yeah. We're not going to explain that to anybody who didn't get what I was trying to reference there. So. so as you think around all the things that you've written on, and including um, this delegation work that you've done, What's been the most challenging and what's been the most fulfilling pieces? The most challenging thing for me in my work has been being honest with myself being, and being honest with uh, some of my own struggles. Um, I think um, one writer that I really look up to and I look up to sort of her, her advice is Anne Lamott. And she talks about writing as something that um, she has a book called Bird by Bird, which I would recommend to, you know, all kind of writers um, and aspiring writers. 
Um, and she talks about how in your writing, you have to get to the emotional center of things that, you know, some of your anger, your damage, your grief, like that, that is actually the way that you get to the truth. Um, and for me, um, for a long time, I think that I've had some tough experiences with churches and with Christian spaces in terms of, of, of rejection and, and in terms of just racism. And, um, and I've had to come to the point where I can be comfortable uh, addressing it. And I think before, in some of my earlier writing, um, I, I wouldn't want to sort of acknowledge the wound that was there, like what was actually happening. Instead, what I wanted to do is I wanted to impress everybody. I wanted to impress my professors and my peers. And I wanted to just like, through sheer logic and the power of my exegesis, just convince people that like reconciliation is the way. <laughs> and I wanted to just like, just like talk about it on a really abstract level. Um, and sometimes some of my pieces are still a little bit more, I think, theoretical that I don't always talk about personal where I'm really trying to get more comfortable with dealing with the personal and dealing with some of the things that have happened to me and being able to write about it and realizing that um, that is a space in which um, I, I can learn, I can grow and I can heal through writing and talking about it. And hopefully I can also, you know, help other people in that process. So for me, that's been one of my struggles is being comfortable with doing that because it requires a great deal of vulnerability. Um, and that's, that's just very, it's very tough. Um, and so, yeah. And then I think one of the most um, rewarding parts about my writing uh, has been uh, those times where, um, where people have, you know, somebody, it's usually like a college student, somebody young writes to me and tells me they read a piece and that it, it really, it really touched them or helped them. I had somebody like write to me from from Mexico. It was actually a young woman who was deported um, not too long ago, and I had written a piece about. Um, I published a piece about how um, this idea that God is in control, um, and it was just after the election um, when you know Trump got elected, and this idea that you know even though you know everything is going is kind of chaotic in society, you know some people are saying you just have to trust that God is in control, that God is in charge, and everything's okay. <laughs> and and I wrote about this idea that God is just in control, and I was like, no, like this is not okay. This is not okay because for certain people, for certain people, their their lives are on the line, you know, and, and it, it's not a joke because then I got, you know, I got a message from someone and she was saying that, you know, just in the past, in the recent past, um, she, she was, had to forcibly, she was forcibly removed from this country and how this idea of wrestling with her faith and doubt and, you know, if, if God was somehow still in charge of this, if God was, you know, controlling her destiny and making her go through this extremely traumatic experience, and um, and for me, when I get that, I mean, that's just a, that's just a gift. I I don't I feel like I don't even deserve that. I I mean, when I when but sometimes that's what happens with it when you when you write certain things like this is that it opens other windows for people to to process their own experiences and and to see certain things. And for me, that's the most exciting part. That's the most rewarding part is when someone that I've done and and they run with it and they do something else or they start to reflect even more or and and I'm just like wow like it's, I'm really like honored when people do that there's a great Ernest Hemingway uh, once said there's nothing to writing all you do is sit down at a typewriter and bleed 
<laughs> but so, yeah, that sounds sounds about right. Yeah. So so Daniel, uh, thank you for your willingness uh, to bleed on our behalf. Um, I know I have benefited theologically uh, and pastorally from your writing. Um, so thank you for your willingness to uh, write on things that matter and write on things that matter for the kingdom of God. Thank you. Thank you, Andy. I appreciate it. This podcast is presented to you by the School of Divinity at Gardner-Webb University. The School of Divinity at Gardner-Webb University exists to prepare men and women for Christian ministry, namely the work of the Lord's Church. Our two degrees, the Master of Divinity and the Doctor of Ministry, are carefully designed to equip and encourage ministers for the calling that God has placed on their lives. The Master of Divinity offers six concentrations, and the Doctor of Ministry can be obtained in either Christian ministries or pastoral care and counseling. Should God have called you to any number of ministry vocations, or if you aren't quite sure which one yet, you will find a place here at Gardner-Webb where, as one of our former deans once said, your heart and your head can be friends. For more information on the Divinity School and upcoming events, visit gardner-webb.edu backslash divinity. Well, that's our episode. We'll see you next week. Visit cbf.net for more information about the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship, stories about our field personnel, chaplains, and church starters, as well as our advocacy work around the world. 